98.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, streaming live on newhavenindependent.org and on the New Haven Independent Facebook page, as well as my Facebook page. You can catch us in any way if you're in a car, 103.5 FM in the New Haven area. If you're online, you can stroll over to the newhavenindependent.org, click the button in the upper left corner that says WNHH or you can tune in live if you are on your computer on uh, the New Haven Independent Facebook page as well as mine so those are like four ways for you to tune in it is Wednesday morning so this is mornings with Mubaraka and we are talking money 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 We are talking financial literacy with Annie Harper, social anthropologist. Thank you for joining me, Annie. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let me tell you a little bit about Annie. Annie is a social anthropologist. She works as an associate research scientist at the Yale Department of Psychiatry Program for Recovery and Community Health where she conducts research on poverty, finances, and mental illness. She is interested in addressing the social determinants of mental health and has a particular focus on understanding how financial services and retail industry could better serve low-income people generally and people with mental health in particular, uh, mental illness in particular. Um, Annie worked for many years in in international development but has lived in the lived for the past 16 years in New Haven with her husband and her three children. Awesome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And they say that money makes the world go round. So the saying goes. I don't know about the world, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of like what makes the United States stay put. <laughs> for sure. So first of all, <clears throat> explain to me what social anthropology mm-hmm. is. Social anthropology is an academic discipline that um, we social anthropologists seek to understand human behavior, human decisions, human societies, um, very much from the perspective of people themselves. So as a social anthropologist, if you want to understand a society or understand why something's happening, you don't necessarily do surveys, you don't necessarily talk to experts, you spend time with the people who you're trying to understand you listen to them in context, you spend time with them, you move around with them, and you take their opinions seriously. And that's what, that's kind of the, the USP of social anthropology, is taking the people you're trying to understand seriously, recognizing people as experts, regardless of their education, um, lived experience is expertise, according to a social anthropologist. So the idea of financial literacy and particularly financial literacy in the um, in the context of uh, uh, social determinants became on my radar several years ago, maybe about four or five years ago. It may have existed before then, but that's probably when I heard it. Um, (laughs) You know, me, my first passion is health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard the term that your zip code determines your health more than your DNA code, Mm -hmm. that is what began to stand up for me when, when my antennas began to stand up. And when we look at so many things from um, health to mental health to it all seems to me to come back 
to money. The interesting thing is that just the other day, so last week I attended the um, uh, Healthy Starts 20-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that popped out at me is a presentation um, where um, the researcher said, one of the the highest correlations to um, to depression for moms is them not being able to buy children their child pampers. Again, going back to where finance finances. Yeah. So, what is the so? How do we 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 approach this idea first? Because it's it's very complicated, right? Absolutely. We're always told let's teach people how to budget. Does that work? Hmm. Well, I'll get on to that in a moment. Um, the first thing I should say about that, and this is really another thing about being a social anthropologist. So we take people seriously wherever they're coming from. We see lived experiences, expertise. Another thing you do as a social anthropologist is you connect individual decisions and individual behavior with wider structures, whether that's the broader culture they live in, um, the economy that they're, that they're living in, the political situation that they're living in, all of those structures whether they're kind of local regional national or global really impact how individuals behave so we're constantly trying to understand those bigger forces when we when we try to understand individual behavior the reason i say that is that often in this country in particular we tend to um basically put the blame on people for their own problems right if somebody's poor can't afford to pay the bills we tend to we tend to think it's because they're making bad decisions um, they're not properly educated, they're uninformed, whatever it might be. <clears throat> what we do in what an anthropologist does, and I think any sensible um, researcher or analyst or just member of the public should do, is recognize the broader forces that maybe brings that person to making those decisions, which might on the face of it look like irresponsibility. But when you understand the concept they're living, the context that person's living in might make sense. Mm. Um so that's that's just something I wanted to say as well. Talking about um, the the first thing you said was the effect on health of poverty. So again, I work specifically with people with mental illness, but the the which is which is actually has a strong correlation with poverty. So if you live in in severe poverty, you are more likely to develop certain mental health problems. Um, but even the kind of low-level mental health problems that people might have, so they're maybe not officially diagnosed, they're not going to seeking mental health treatment, but they're stressed, anxious, depressed, um, you know, arguing with their family members. Those problems are also often caused by poverty, by simply not having enough money, right? Mm. And then the final thing you said to me is, oh, so, you know, it's all about, do we just need to teach people how to budget? And my very, very strong answer to that is absolutely not. This For the last three decades in this country, as we've recognized that people are struggling financially, um, inequality has grown fairly dramatically in this country in the last 30 years. So more and more, it's it's hard not to see the fact that there are people who are really, really struggling for so, a long. So and, and, and with that, <clears throat> what's interesting is it's not just that the rich are getting richer to make that gap. It's that the poor is getting poorer. Am I correct? Um, some people are certainly, yes. And the, the kind of relative income of people at the lower level has gone down. Um, a lot of it also does have to do with the richer getting richer, but there are certainly a, is that the, is, so what, what do they mean when they say the middle class is disappearing? So because you have this, you have an increasing number, you have a, 
increasing gap between the very, very rich and then the people who are in the middle. The middle class used to be the people who kind of bridge that gap between the wealthy and the, the, the poor right now. Right now you have the very poor, the poor, the what used to be middle class, which is kind of above the poor, but then you have this kind of stratospheric group who are the super rich who are so far away from the middle class that it's it's you know the aspiration for the middle class to to reach the level of the richest is now an impossible dream mm. so i think that's what people mean by the dis- disappearing middle class okay all right all right and is that so what is the if budgeting is not the answer so we're talking so here's an interesting statistic that i that i read is that um uh, it was a, a research by, I think they said the, the SunTrust Bank that found that people who make $75,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. When we think of like seven, that's like way above mm-hmm. the <laughs> the poverty line. Absolutely. How are people who make $75,000 a year living paycheck to paycheck? So I think we need to recognize the different kind of groups that we're talking about here. Let me just back up a bit and talk about this issue of making a budget. As I said, for a long time, we've believed that the way we can help people with their financial difficulties, or rather we've said, we've we've assumed that if someone's struggling financially and living paycheck to paycheck, it must be because they, they're either they're stupid or they're just not financially literate, right? Mm-hmm. So we provide training. You can access a financial literacy training, which will teach you basically to make a budget, open a bank account, et cetera, almost anywhere in the country. Now, they're ubiquitous. It's what we do. Um, it doesn't work for multiple reasons, but but in themselves, there's nothing wrong with learning about learning those things, right? It doesn't harm you, but it's not necessarily transformational because most, and I'm not talking about the $75,000 people now, I'm talking about the people who live below the poverty line, around the poverty line, and even, even somewhere above the poverty line. For those people, the the primary reason why they're not able to make it financially is that they can't they might be the best budgeters in the world. They might be like an absolute an absolute whiz when it comes to being making good decisions about their finances. But if what you're bringing in isn't covering what has to go out, you're going to mess up, right? You're going to be you're going to be struggling. So that's one reason why um, the you know the budgeting training doesn't necessarily work. When you talk about the people who are wealthier and are still struggling to make it, obviously. For any for, for any group of people, however much income you have, your individual decisions make a different right, difference, right? And ev- anyone can make a mistake or can make a rash decision or can occasionally want a luxury. And certainly there are people up at the $75,000 level who could do things differently and not be struggling as badly. But then again, remember, we live in a society in the particular culture in the United States where constantly getting richer, doing better, buying more, is the norm it's pretty hard uh, as an individual living in that culture to resist the the temptation to do that and also it's increasingly difficult to save money and it's increasingly easy to borrow money now the 2008 crisis changed that a bit but it's i think we expect a little much of people when we tell them to control their behavior and control their spending when out there there are so many options to buy to consume and to borrow if you don't have enough money to actually buy buy something right now so so if budgeting doesn't work how do we how do we make an an, an impact in the lives of people who who just is suffering from not just poverty but generational poverty mm-hmm. these are people who don't have a parent or an uncle to go and get them out of a jam 
who is one emergency away from being in a homeless shelter. Well, what what is the how do we approach that as a community, first of all? So obviously it's not there's not one answer, right? There lots of things have to be done to solve that problem. Um, and there are numerous resources out there which which focus on different pieces of it. There's this awesome book by Matthew Desmond called Evicted about the housing problem. There's an incredible um, book out recently called The Color of Law, talking about the kind of historical dimension to a spe- specifically racial racial wealth inequality. There's so much that needs to be done, but I'm just going to narrow. Uh, focus narrowly on um, the kind of money management piece, the money that comes into people's lives and goes out of their lives. How can we help people with that? And as I see it, there are kind of three strands. <clears throat> the first is people don't have enough money. A lot of people don't have enough money, right? So that's a big problem to solve. We need an increase in the minimum wage. We need increase in benefits for people who are disabled. We need a better welfare state. We, p- some people simply need more money. They just don't have enough to get by. doesn't matter how greater budget they can make, they're not going to manage. So that's one piece. The second piece is, in fact, financial literacy, right? So anyone can benefit from some kind of training and advice and support around doing better with your finances, Um, making a budget. A lot of people don't make a budget. There there is a place for financial literacy training. Um, What we found has a better impact. So financial literacy training has traditionally been like, you know, come to six classes and your life will change. (laughs) That doesn't work so well. What seems to have a better impact is what we call financial coaching, which is regular one-on-one sessions with someone who helps you tackle your particular problems and take the next, you know, do whatever you need to do to improve. So that's the second piece is like helping somebody with their finances. The third piece that I think is absolutely crucial that we don't really understand very well and isn't sort of part of, you know, public discourse is banking services. And that's something I'm really interested in. Currently, banks and even credit unions do not do a very good job of serving people who are struggling financially. And that's an area that we're just beginning to tackle. And I think if we can change the way the banking system works, that would potentially be transformational. So bringing it it to a local level, and I don't don't know all of the details but i remember when uh start bank first came to new haven um at the time i was on the whaley avenue business um district board and they gave a moving uh presentation about how they were going to come and solve all of the issues that makes banks and payday lenders and check cashing places so bad for uh, the poor people. Um, how do how do how do banks do that, and why hasn't that been a, a greater impact? So we're incredibly lucky in New Haven because we have Start Bank, and it's not just Start Bank. There's there's been a conversation going on for, on for a long time in New Haven, recognizing that, frankly, banks are part of the problem, but also that banks are part of the solution. <clears throat> Start Bank. Um, hasn't changed New Haven. It's not changing the world, but it's kind of, it's at the forefront with a couple of other institutions in really trying to make a difference. But as you see, it's what Start Bank is trying to do is incredibly difficult. And I think that difficulty comes down to a real fundamental problem. Banks need to make money, right? They're profit-making institutions. Um, it's very difficult to serve poor people effectively and make a profit. That so, is a so fundamental do, problem that 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 we continue to grapple with. So, so here is the, I guess, the the question that is um, that 
is often asked is, why do people need a bank account? Why do banks even have an, uh, a part of this? Why can't I just keep my money and then just pay my bills? And <laughs> what does banks have to do with it? That is the best question here. Because one of the things, along with the, the past 30 years, along with financial literacy training, the other thing we've we've done to poor people is say, you don't have a bank account. Are you crazy? Open a bank account. And many, many times it doesn't work for people, right? But why do they tell people that? Because that's what we assume. We assume that if you don't, if you're poor and you don't have a bank account, the reason you're poor is because you don't have a bank account, which is totally wrong. So let me just talk a bit about why it's great to have a bank account, but also what can go wrong. So why do we have a bank account? Everybody, regardless of your situation, we need help with five things. One is receiving money. The second is storing that money, right? The third is paying bills, like rent, utility, etc. <clears throat> the fourth is um, everyday purchases, clothing, food, transportation, whatever. The fifth is saving money, whether it's for something you have to buy at the end of the month, something you have to do next year, or the end of your life, right? Mm. And then the sixth, I should have said there are six things, is borrowing money. Whether it's borrowing uh, 100 bucks now to pay the light bill so that you don't so that you can pay it, not disconnected, or borrowing to buy a house. These are kind of six things that everyone needs to be able to do. Now, the best way to do that is through a bank. The best and cheapest way is to do that through a bank. So I get my money direct deposited into my account. I, my utility bills I pay online, they go through automatically, <clears throat> as does my mortgage payment. Um, my money sits in my account, and when I need to buy groceries, I use my debit card. Um, I have a savings account and I also have a student savings account so I can put money aside so that I don't spend it and I can save it for later. If I need to borrow money, I have a credit card. I've accessed a mortgage through my credit union. Um, I may be getting a car loan at some point soon. It works pretty seamlessly for me. So that's why, in theory, everyone should have a bank account because it's cheap and it's effective and it helps you do things smoothly. In practice, if you don't have much money, you can get kind of um, caught out at every step of that process if you have a bank account it's because we know that banks charge fees and the two fees that really hurt low-income people are minimum balance fees and overdraft fees. If you have a tight budget, by which I mean your expenses and your income are really like close to each other, every so often you're going to spend a little more than you have. And you know what happens if you spend a little more than you have from your bank account, you, you get an overdraft fee, which is on average $35. And I just have to throw in this piece of information that the share of profits that banks get from overdraft fees has risen pretty dramatically in the last couple of decades. Mm. Banks make money from overdraft fees and they make them disproportionately from poor people. Mm. Overdraft fees are, it, is, it's, it can be more expensive to borrow <laughs> using an overdraft, i.e. getting an overdraft so you can pay your light bill. It's more expensive to do it through an overdraft than it is through a payday loan. This is a mm. huge money suck for people who are poor and who find themselves in that kind of, precarious situation at the end of the month so for people like that the way that banking the banks currently work actually it probably doesn't make sense to open a bank account it might be more sensible to have a prepaid card to get your money and, and pay bills um and frankly to use a pawn shop when you need more money than you have or to go to friends and family mm. um i don't 
pawn shops are not something I would advocate that anyone use, but sometimes it's cheaper than an overdraft. Wow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. This is Mornings with Mubaraka, and we are talking to social anthropologist Annie Harper about financial literacy and some of its social determinants. Uh, we left off about talking about the pros and cons of banks. So overdraft fees is where, so here's an interesting thing that I realized the other day in my lifetime of having a bank account. There used to be a time where you had an overdraft fee and that was your overdraft fee. And now they like charge you an overdraft fee for every day that your account still is in overdraft. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought about that the other day. I was like, wow. I was like, that's crazy that you actually get charged every single day that it's in overdraft. And, I, did- and I'm sure that that has to do with the fact that the overdraft income has gone up for the banks. Yeah. And I don't want to, so I work with a lot of banks here in New Haven. I have the utmost respect for the individuals that I work with. And I also, frankly, have respect for the banking system. We need a banking system in this country, um, and especially a credit union system, let's be honest. <clears throat> but the 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 banks, on the one hand, I recognize banks have to make a profit. And if you have someone who's constantly going under and spending more than they have, That's not a good customer for you. Mm. But at the same time, banks are not entirely innocent here. There is a history of banks. um, I'll see if I can describe it. It's a complex process whereby they have some banks were found to have been reordering payments that people made. So that say you made five payments in one day of different amounts um, and you made five small payments and then one large payment. So you'd make five small payments, which didn't take you overdrawn. And then the fifth payment would take you overdrawn, right? The banks, when they reckon the, the each account at the end of the day, would reorder them. So the big payment went through first, taking you overdrawn at the beginning of the day. And then those <sighs> remaining five payments would then come through after each one of them incurring an overdraft fee wow. to maximize their profits. Wow. Um, the banks were taken to court for this. So this is, um, we really need to be looking both at the kind of structural reasons why even a really honest good bank is struggling to serve people in this situation but also recognizing that that banks have done immoral stuff in the past mm. wells fargo has a, has had a particular problem recently for you know fraudulently opening people's accounts to to boost their i saw that like and it was wasn't like a little problem it was like 70 percent of their <laughs> accounts were small business accounts was fraudulent i i don't know the numbers exactly but but all i'm all I'm saying is we need to pay attention to the banking industry and make sure they are absolutely being um, doing what they need to do to help everyone in America, not mm-hmm. just their, their own pockets. Mm. So is you, 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 you mentioned it really quickly. Explain to me the difference between a bank and a credit union. Okay. <clears throat> I hope I didn't get this wrong. But as far as I understand, a bank is a, um, an institu- a for-profit institution that's owned by shareholders. That's a key thing because shareholders demand... Um, profits from the money that they've invested in an institution. So banks are shareholder-owned, they're for-profit institutions, and they they provide a service in the sense that they provide a way for us to do all those things I listed, right? Receive, store, spend, pay bills, save, borrow money. Um, but they're doing it to make money. Um, a credit union, credit unions are actually non-for-profit institutions. They need to make a profit to cover their costs, but they are not, they don't have share, well, they do have shareholders, but it's a little different they're not looking to enrich shareholders who've invested 
in the company to try and make money. With a credit union, the shareholders are the people who have accounts there. So when you open an account at a credit union, you own part of that credit union. And any profits that the credit union may make will eventually come back to you in the form of dividends, but also in the form of cheaper uh, products that you might use from the credit union. So credit unions are surprisingly not as widespread as they should be. I think credit uh, credit unions, if I was making a choice, and I have personally, but if I advise people, I would always say a credit union is better. Mm, Okay. So you... So we talked about kind of like the banking and the overdraft fees. How is how is a payday lender? It can be an option versus a bank because that that caught my ear because, yeah. you know, we are uh, I think it, I don't, I'm sure it has something to do with kind of like the reports is like, oh, payday lenders are sharks. Payday lenders are horrible. Stay away from payday lenders. So all of that is correct. Right. Payday lenders are definitely the bad guys. And I, again, I would never recommend that anyone use a payday lender. They can suck you dry. They will take, as the, the, the interest rates end up being absolutely extortionate. I have one client that I work with, um, a mental health patient. She took a $500 loan to pay an essential bill from a payday lender, which, by the way, are illegal in Connecticut, but it's very easy to get one online. Um, oh, so she, lenders are illegal. In they're illegal in Connecticut because of the there are, we have caps on interest that you can charge on loans, uh-huh. but anyone can go on loan and get one. You do have to have a bank account. Okay. So she took a five hundred dollar payday loan, and over the period of time that she repaid that, and she missed a couple of payments, she repaid something like one thousand five hundred and sixty dollars on that original five hundred dollar loan. So payday loans are a disaster. And I would wow. never recommend anyone use one. However, the only reason that I compared them with with overdrafts is that in some cases, if you go $20 over in order to pay an essential bill, right, and end up getting not just one overdraft fee, but a whole raft of overdraft fees because you then continue right. to make it's payments, more than three you times. can end up paying hundreds of dollars <laughs> for $20. basically a $20 loan. Yeah. So. Yeah. What I'm really saying is payday lenders aren't good, but in some cases, banks, through their overdraft keep fees, can end up being just as expensive as a payday loan. Wow. Avoid both is my advice. <laughs> and Not avoid banks, but avoid overdrafts. <laughs> avoid overdrafts. Yeah. Um, and so explain to me how, let's talk about solutions. Mm-hmm. How can banks be a part of the solution that poor people have in just financial management so I'm, I'm so glad you, are, you asked that question because that's absolutely essential. As I said in the part, so banks have, have recognized the problems and have wanted to be part of it for a long time. Up to really relatively recently, their intervention has mostly been in order to sort of um, fulfill their CRA requirements, which is Community Reinvestment Act requirements, which all banks have. They tend to do things like either make grants, sort of small grants to organizations or provide financial literacy training. So they have tried to be part of the solution, but I think now there's a recognition nationally that by being part of the solution, they actually really need to change the way they do business. And um, what's very exciting and is happening here in New Haven is that as part of a a new initiative um, that the mayor has been spearheading for the last two years called the New Haven Financial Empowerment Project, um, we're now moving to a stage where we, we actually have some funding from the Cities for Financial Empowerment Fund in New York to hire someone to, um, to partner with banks in New Haven and work with them over time to understand the, the, the problems of people who are unbanked and to actually develop tools and products that will 
serve people who currently aren't well served. This is a very hard thing to do, as I said. Start Bank's been trying to do for it, it for a while. It's if you if banks don't make a profit um, with a new product, they might come up with that product to look good, but they're not necessarily going to market it very widely. Mm. We really need to put pressure on banks, and I think some of the banks in New Haven are willing to do this to really think about looking at their bottom line in a different way and recognizing that there are some people who they're not serving. They need to serve them morally and eventually. For their own, if you can pull people up, then they're going to be good customers in the future, right? Mm. People who are struggling now. So to really think about maybe readjusting their profits at the, so that they maybe don't make a profit on one chunk of their customers, but they cross-subsidize with profits they're making from others, for example. So are we going to convince them to get rid of those overdraft fees? <laughs> in our dreams. The dreams can come true. Dreams can come true. And I did, I mean, I, I do have, if, if you're interested, I have some information about the specifics of what's happening in New Haven as far as people having bank accounts, not having bank accounts, which I think are important because it it gives us a kind of local picture of what I've I've sort of been talking very generally. So, so besides overdraft fees, mm. give me another example of how banks uh, affect um, lower income people and something that they can can look at modifying. So a big one is um, there are really two areas. One is the account where you keep your money. So obviously overdraft fees are a problem with that. The other problem with those accounts is minimum balance fees. So for people whose income is low and so they're always very close to their expenses, they may have a they may go below that minimum balance from time to time. Um, so that's a problem that, you know, if you, you don't have enough mo money anyway, and then you're charged a $5 fee for having too little in your account, it just takes you mm. down even further. Um, ATM fees are actually a huge problem for people who are very poor. It might not seem much to have to pay $3 to withdraw money. But if you're if you can't even afford to pay your light bill, then $3 every time you withdraw money is a problem. So those are other fees. The other area that I think banks really need to reconsider um, the way that they serve low income people is around loans. I'm not talking about car loans, house loans. I'm talking about the 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 kind of cushion that people need, just like you said, the the utility bill that might mean you don't you can't pay your rent and you might risk eviction, right? Mm. Even if people could access up to $300 in affordable short-term credit, right? So basically maybe even an, an overdraft facility that would let you go $300 into the red without charge. Mm. That kind of thing. Um, as long as it was paid back in a certain time with a relatively low interest rate. Currently, when people are in that situation, if they need $100, $200, $300, if they don't have friends or family who can help them with that, mm. they end up going to the payday lenders, the pawn shops, or going overdrawn. Mm. And I think, there's a, I think there's a possibility there for banks um, to provide much more affordable, very small, short-term loans to help people through those bumps. Mm. Mm. Yes. That's what that sounds like a good sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> That's really interesting, though, because I, I guess I don't think about or haven't thought about. And this is one of the reasons why I love doing the show. <laughs> I, I learn something like all the time. I, and I haven't thought about um, um, all of those different ways in which banking. Now, you you mentioned a term um, unbanked. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just throw that meaning those are people who just don't have a bank account or have not had a bank account. Well, no, it's people who don't have a bank account. Okay. So I'll give you just some, some, some <clears throat> national data. Around 8% of Americans don't have bank accounts. And in New Haven, I mean, look at my little sheet here. 
we have about 18% of New Haven residents don't have bank accounts. Oh, so we're a, a lot higher than national And that average. number rises by income, race, and education. So I'm just going to tell you, if you earn less than $30,000, of people who earn less than $30,000 in New Haven, 65% of them don't have a bank account. Whereas, it, whereas if you earn over 75000 only 3% don't have a bank account, right? But mm -hmm. listen to this. 11% of white people in New Haven don't have a bank account compared to 23% of blacks and 36% of Hispanics. So there's mm. a very strong racial dimension to this. Mm. And then if you don't have a high school diploma, 66% of that group doesn't have a bank account compared to 3% of those who have a bachelor's or higher. Mm. Point being, this is really, as you move down in terms of income status and into minority groups, the numbers of people who are unbanked is much, much higher. Those people mm. are absolutely not well served by banks. So yes, unbanked means you don't have a bank account, but there's an important thing that many people don't know, even those people who know how many people are unbanked. Almost everyone who doesn't have a bank account has had one in the past. Really? So what does that tell us? It tells us that the reason they don't have a bank account isn't because they just haven't noticed that there are banks or they don't know how to open a bank account or they're just like prefer to operate in cash. It means they've had a bank account in the past and it didn't work for them. That's an incredibly Ooh. important fact that I think many, many people haven't really understood. Wow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. We are talking to social anthropologist Annie Harper about uh, uh, financial literacy and some of the social determinants of our economic state. So tell, so we have about five minutes left to the show. Let's circle back around to our initial question. Mm -hmm. Budgeting does not work. Banks are not serving people without bank accounts. How do we impact or bring people who are on the lower levels of our economic stratus? How do we bring them up? So, as I said before, there's, there's lots of things that need to change to bring people up. When it comes to this particular issue, finances, managing finances, banking, um, there are a few things that need to be done. And I'm so excited to say that I think they're happening in New Haven. Possibly, um, we're, we're one of the few cities in the country that is really taking this seriously. Um, and so we have a new financial empowerment center that is just beginning to come together out on Dixwell at the new op at the Opportunity Center. Um, and what what we're hoping will happen here in New Haven is what needs to be done. The first is providing people with financial literacy training, giving an opportunity to people who simply don't know to come and learn how to do things, how to open a bank account, how to avoid an overdraft. Um, how to create a budget, how to try and make a savings plan. These are really important things and that will be offered at this Financial Empowerment Center. The second thing that will also be done is one-on-one -on -one coaching. Take it rather, you know, if you sit in a class, you don't necessarily want to share all your gruesome details of your financial problems. So have someone who you can go to one-on-one -on -one over a period of time and really open up about what's wrong, make a plan and work to that plan, be accountable to that person who'll check in with you regularly and fix your problems. The third, which is already happening and is incredibly exciting, is debt counseling. Debt is a huge problem in this city. People are in all types of debt up to their eyeballs. Um, there's one nonprofit debt counseling company in, in, the, in the state 
Anyone else who offers to, to help you with your debt is probably making money out of it. Money Management International is the only nonprofit debt counseling company in Connecticut. Mm. And New Haven has a special arrangement with them whereby we can refer residents to them and they don't even pay the basic fee that Money Management International usually charges. So that's if you're if you're 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 in debt, your credit score's awful and you want to start fixing it. And then the final piece is developing a coalition with banks and credit unions to educate them about what the situation is, educate them about what else is happening around in the country that can help to 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 serve these people who are currently not well served by banks and frankly to put some pressure on them to do business differently for the good of <clears throat> for the good of the whole community of New Haven. Mm-hmm. So as you as we wind down to the last couple of minutes Annie, can you Give us a few resources for people to go to both locally and for our listeners who are not local. Okay, so I can recommend three. Um, the most local one is the, um, the the Financial Empowerment Project in New Haven. Right now, as I said, it, it's just beginning to get started. But what we do have up and running um, still needs to be worked out a bit. But we have a website. It's newhavenfinancialempowerment.com. So that website has some great resources if you have questions about, you know, how do I get ready to buy a house? How do I make a budget? Um, how do I um, make sure that I'm my transportation is as cheap as possible? So that's a great resource just for some local advice. Um, if you're really struggling with debt and you're um, worried about your credit score, look up Money Management International. That is going to be the best place for you to get good advice about how to repair your repair your credit score and manage your debt. Um, I've really been impressed by their services. Um, nationally, we're very lucky in this country, and fingers crossed we will still have this in the future, is that we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was started after the financial crisis of 2008. That's a, a federal department which is responsible for um, kind of monitoring and regulating bank activity insofar as it affects consumers. Um, they are very much under threat from this current administration, um, but what they do is invaluable. They are the voice of the consumer when it comes to financial institutions. Mm. They have on their website an absolute wealth of resources um, and they really can answer almost any question that someone might have about a specific financial problem they're facing. So um, if you just Google Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or even CFPB, um, you'll find their website and, and they have great advice. Thank you so much. I Thank you for joining me and... I've learned a lot during the show, so I appreciate it. And if you are just tuning in, then you just missed the, a great show about financial literacy and some of our economic social determiners of of, of wealth, I should say. Um, um, and you've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP. This is Mubaraka Ibrahim. Until next week, I'm reminding you to be a voice and not an echo. <laughs>